So I want to welcome my next guest, Dimitri Rusunis. I know him as Jimmy, but uh, Dimitri Rusunis is a, another friend of mine who I'd like to um, introduce you all to. Welcome to the podcast, Jimmy. <coughs> Hello, Gosta. <laughs> it's good to see you. It's good to see us both with our headphones on and uh, ready to record. Um, you come across as a shy person sometimes, but I know that uh, you can be quite confident. I mean, for those that don't know you, you're an actor. Yep. Um, some of you might know him from Pirates of the Caribbean, so I can have the um, honor to say I'm interviewing a pirate. <laughs> so some of you might remember the scene from Pirates of the Caribbean where there's a um, lifeboat in the water and two pirates are fishing boat, fishing boats, um, fighting over a hat, and one is talking in Turkish Cypriot dialect and one is talking in a Greek Cypriot dialect. Well. It's a giveaway now. The one that's speaking in the Greek Cypriot dialect is yours truly, um, Dimitri, Jimmy Rusunis. So thank you for um, coming out of the sea and uh, gracing me with your uh, presence. Um, but also, I found it interesting recently, I was on a flight, a British Airways flight, um, going from Larnaca to London and had the screen on watching something. And all of a sudden, there you were on the screen again. I didn't realize you were in so many um, different shows, but there you were on the screen and... Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, Stathis Let's Flats is the Stath name? Let's Flats. Stath yeah. Let's Flats <clears throat> is the um, is the series. Is that still being recorded, or is that finished now? Stath Let's Flats was a series for Channel Four in the UK. Mm-hmm. Basically, it started filming 2019, 2020. The first series. It's an uh, an English Cypriot, not very Cypriot, but an English Cypriot actor director, producer, mm-hmm. writer called Jamie Dimitriou, mm-hmm. who some of your viewers might have spotted in Barbie and films like that. Okay. And uh, it's a full-on comedy set in the North London estate agency world with a Greek Cypriot estate agent and his family. And I played his dad's best friend, shall we say, so as not to spoil it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was in series two and series three. Okay. And uh, it was a very successful series. It won BAFTA for Best Comedy, BAFTA for Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Writing. Oh, wow. For the Series 2 and Series 3. So for those that don't know, the BAFTA is basically the British version of an Academy Award, right? Yeah, yep. exactly. And uh, he's taking a sabbatical from it now, so we don't know if it's going to come back. Okay. As I've said, he's working on big Hollywood films now, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't blame him for taking the money while it's there. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, what's your um, where do you live now? Where, where's where's home for you these days? Ayos Athanasios Lemeso. Lemeso, and your family's originally from Arodes Bafu. Arodes Bafu, which um, you've been asking me many times to come and visit yeah. you while I'm down yeah, there. I still you, haven't managed. Yeah, you but... never have. <laughs> but um, do you still go much to the village? Yeah, I, I love it up there. I go at least once a month. I'd say on average. You got a place to stay? Not really. My mum's house is a ruin so there's a thousand stones there waiting mm-hmm. to be rebuilt which i've been thinking about planning for the last 10 years still haven't started and i've got bits of land but i've got i can i've got a little place i borrow or i rent a place okay. sometimes it's a nice part of the world there very yeah. rural Cypriot, authentic calm agamas agamas is nearby what's left of it or what yeah. will soon be left of it if the way things are going what's your opinion on that huh <laughs> Um, <clears throat> Are we going to get you in trouble with the locals? No, it's it's a funny one because I did before I started acting. I did my degree in economics and geography, and and a lot of the geography was the environmental side of it. So I feel 
in the know about that world slightly. And yeah. uh, I've always deemed myself to be on the green side of politics, even if I haven't become a member of a particular party. Mm-hmm. But I am from that part of the world and the villages up there are my people as well. So I can see their point of view when they say they want to develop. When they say they want to develop, <clears throat> they don't actually mean they want to develop. They want to sell their land to yeah. developers. That's as far as I can understand it. Yeah. The same with Inyadrusha and all the other villages. I can understand why it has to be protected a thousand percent. And I can understand why it's very difficult for the government to go into that part of the world and say to these four or five villages, you're not going to be able to develop your land like everyone else has, especially when there's an example of Bayer next door, where they can see what's happened there and how wealthy those people have become just by dint of being the owners of that land. What would you suggest as a solution to that? Well, I have suggested it also to the people who were involved in trying to draw it up, and it has to be protected thousand percent yeah but i think where they've gone wrong is where they've for the last few firstly they went wrong by not doing it 20 30 years ago i wrote a letter to it's funny we're in glafkos gliridis's library i wrote a letter to glafkos gliridis 25 years ago saying it has to be sorted out a couple of suggestions as i'm from there I got a nice letter back from his permanent secretary saying, we're just about to do it. It's been going on, but hopefully in the next couple of... That was 25 years ago. 25 years ago when that was agricultural land, when it could have been compensated as agricultural land. Yeah. When Bayer hadn't been developed in the same way. I mean, that was the big mistake. It's easy to say it now. I feel that where they've gone wrong is they've been saying we need to try and compensate these people. I think if they had really piled in with big ginidra, big motivation to do other things, <clears throat> yeah. then at that, then maybe the villagers wouldn't be demanding what they've been demanding for the last five, ten years. If 10, 15 years ago they'd gone to those villagers and said, you want to build a hotel? We'll help you. You won't be just one of, a part of the big pot for all that agro-touristic development money that existed Mm -hmm. you will have a special status here you will have a greater chance of actually building those taverns those pensions those small hotels if you want to do business up here you can do it with this with this um that i think they went slightly wrong there whereas now there were other things they could have done they could have done a magnet school there was a fellow villager of mine aris badassis who went to them 20 plus years ago and said, do a magnet school in Arodis, which is in the middle of all the villages, so that people don't leave because they have a school. They don't need Idiedera. They don't need private lessons. They will stay here or they'll send their kids to this when school. When you say magnet school, you mean like a school that's in the middle of these villages that everyone is attracted to? Yeah, like, it's okay. so good that yeah. it attracts people. Okay. It's not yeah. just a Zimodigo yeah. or a Yimnasio. It'll be something that people in Bafos will want to send their kids to. I was going to say, because the, the truth of the matter is that from Bafos to the other side of the um, the district, I mean, it's a 40-minute drive, okay? Yeah. And it's not tragic by international standards. I mean, the road is a bit terrible, and thankfully they're going to be working on that. But um, to have a magnet school where people from Bafos, or at least the villages of the rural areas of Bafos attending, would help keep the villages, will help them be sustainable, Yeah, will help them keep their youth, 
And by that, by default, it will start developing because yeah, people will start opening restaurants and kiosks and uh, you know cafes and uh, agrotouristic pensions and whatnot. Um, again, though, that solves the problem of the rural villages per se, but not the Natura 2000 areas, the Akamas nature area itself. Now, I think most people would like to see that area preserved from any form of building, any form of development, um, because it is pretty much the last bastion of wilderness on the island. Yeah. I mean, and we are a small island. Um, but on the other hand, if people own property in that area, you understand that they want to have the same right as anyone else to sell it and make money from it. So perhaps this is where the government would need to come along and say, okay, you know, I'm going to exchange your property for a property somewhere else, maybe towards Paphos or, in, or within that of the, um, the valley, let's say, um, and in exchange for a property that actually is still worth something and not something in the middle of nowhere that's not worth anything. I mean, perhaps people will accept that. What do you think? I, th I think there's a couple of things there. <clears throat> Sorry. Firstly, they... Arodis, for example, doesn't have land all the way down to the sea. Inya has most of the land that we're talking about. It's basically, Inya is the big issue here. They have the land in Lara. They have the sea, the area around that sea, yeah. uh, sea, the sea there. What What is... You say it's the last bastion of wilderness. When one goes... To the Agamas. Where do you go? Well, I, I don't because I, I don't oh. have a four-wheel drive to get out there. Or anyone. Who, yeah. Where would they go if they go there? I'm guessing they go to the beach. Or they, they go, go to the... Lara. They yeah. go to that bit of beach. I don't know anyone who goes into the forest. I think... Um... And, that, and I think that's an issue because when they when you talk to the villagers about Agamas, all they, all they think about is Lara or Doxeftra maybe, which okay. is the other bay. Yeah, yeah. They don't. They don't really understand. What do you mean... Agama, so you mean that bit of beach? Why can't we build up here? What you're protecting the forest? No one goes into the forest unless you're on a one of those buggies. Of, I think that's the whole point of preserving. I understand the that, but they can't get their heads around why will thousands of people come here? We can only imagine thousands of people going to that beach. Yeah, but these you don't want thousands of people. Going I know, but the they still do reserve. come even now, and they're saying, "Well, can't we monetize that element that's coming now?" Or maybe giving them a couple of places to stay. It's, it's, it's a complicated issue which has been left too long and is in the process of being solved whether we like it or not because, as we say with the Cyprus problem, there are Dedeles Mana now. There are things on the ground that are happening that are going to stay the there. Yeah. There will be a road from Arodes to Avagas. We could never go to Avagas from Arodes before. In a few months, we'll be able to get to Avagas in 10 minutes from Arodes. Oh, that will change everything. It will, the same will happen... From Inya, I imagine they'll improve that road and there'll be a spot there where you can park and then supposedly carry on in a park and ride. Yeah. It's changing whether we like it or not. I understand that it won't be to the liking of the Greens, but it's also not to the liking of the villagers. And again, to look at the Cyprus problem, when everyone's unhappy, then they've probably done something right. <laughs> there is some truth there, because if everyone's happy, then something's gone yeah, wrong. Yeah. Um, Coming back to your point about you know lots of people visiting the national park. If I'm to use the American example of Yosemite and um, Yellowstone, yeah, I've been to Sequoia. Yosemite. Yeah. I've now been there. I was just there two months ago, and I found it very fascinating that in the middle of this incredible nature reserve, this national park, you know, big car parks, lots of buses shipping people around, hotels, restaurants, mm. accommodation, mm. tents, and I thought. 
how interesting that that can coexist with the nature. However, I think the difference is that I'm not going to say it's the mentality of the Americans because half the people going there are foreigners of all different kinds of mentalities. So it's not a matter of, oh, the Americans respect nature and they don't rubbish and they don't pollute and they don't kill any random animal they come across. It's not that because, again, there are foreigners visiting. I think it's enforcement of certain rules and regulations, clear and defined pathways, clear and defined no-go zones and paths that you stick to to go see sites. Um, I think that Agamas has incredible potential. We've got to be honest, it's not the Amazon and it's not, you know, the Great Barrier Reef. It's not something um, globally significant. It's infinitely significant for the Cypriots because it is, again, the last bastion, let's say. But, you know, if it were to be made somewhat accessible, within reason, within clear and defined paths, well and truly controlled, with, you know, rangers that actually watch out, no hunting, so no pallets being left behind, no wild animals being killed, um, beaches being clearly used for sunbathing and swimming, but no, but no actual beds that are disrupting turtle nests and whatnot, that can all be done. The problem is, again, coming back to the village folk of Inya and Arrodes and Drusha and Neohorio and all this, they want to make, they want to monetize on this. How can you monetize when you just have, you know, people visiting and leaving the same day? You've got to have people staying overnight or whatever. Why do they necessarily need to stay in Agamas? Why can they not, for example, stay in Inya village itself? Or in, you know, actually, and that would actually help bolster the economy of the actual village. It doesn't solve the problem of the land people own in what is to be the national park. Again, for me, that's solvable by property exchange. I mean, is that not some kind of compromise? That can, no, no definitely. I mean, as I said before, they they just see an easy way of monetizing it is that they've got, you know, 10 scholars of agricultural land that they will be able to sell mm -hmm. to somebody who may at some point build a hotel or... Okay, so then whatever. Selling, they just, if they want to sell, you sell to the None of this right? will come back to the village. This is what does my head yeah. in, is that it won't be them building the hotels. It yeah. won't be like some of the other places that got developed slowly over time, like yeah. Ayanapa maybe, or even Bea, where some of the locals actually got involved in it. In Harodis, it's 30, 40 people left. Yeah. They're all old. <clears throat> None of them are in the hospitality business even now. There's, there's not going to be them who are doing it. It's too late. So they, basically, not, they, they want to make a quick buy. They just want to sell it. And so the other people will pile in to do it. And they're the ones who are pressing for it. Or some of the other villages have people there who are in business and see that opportunity for them to be the middlemen as well when mm -hmm. it does take off so that they can cash in. None of them really, none of them are really thinking about the village in the way they should be about having people staying there or coming back yeah. or new people coming to live and make lives there and give life to that village or yeah. or regen re rejuvenating the farmland to a greater extent or mm. in a way I think maybe what the government is on the way to doing which is just a, a line and you're not going to go in there and that's that and you can moan all you want is probably the right thing Mm -hmm. I'm, I've got 10 scullis, which are not going to be developed. Mm -hmm. And I said it to Glyri this 25 years ago. I don't mind as long as you do it so it's done. Well, what would you like you know, to see happen to your 10, 10 donums? Well, would you like it to be compensated to you? Because you're not going to just hand it over for free. It's not handed, but it was agricultural mm -hmm. to start with. I'm still allowed to farm it. 
Even with his new... Yeah. Okay, Why not? I, think, I would hope so. Why would they not allow you to farm your land? Even in the middle of the Nadura, you'll be allowed to farm. You won't be allowed to build or uh-huh. maybe use certain types of pesticides and such, I sure. imagine. But you should, you would still be allowed to farm. I think, though, a lot of people, even if a plan was delivered that satisfied people, I think the fact of the matter is that history dictates in Cyprus that things aren't enforced. So I think um, a lot of people will be like, okay, you know what? Sure. My farm, my land can only be farmed for X, Y, Z. I can't use these pesticides. I can, pesticides. I can only grow these plants. You know, you could accept that, let's say. But then you know very well that the next day your neighbor might be doing something that's against the rules. Who is going to police that? Who's going to keep them in check? Mm-hmm. They're not. Um, so far, we've, we've got history dictates this to us. And I think this is why we have such a negative attitude from people because they know that no matter what's delivered, it won't be cemented and it won't be respected. I think people want to see their compensation. Everyone looks out for their own pocket, right? Yeah. So you want the immediate solution that you can try. You can trust the solution that includes money in your pocket because it's done, done deal. Look, there's a restaurant not in Lara, not in Lara as you know, it, the, the other bay next to it. There's a restaurant. It's been there forever. 20 years. I think the people live there, as far as I can tell as well. It's obviously totally illegal, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you? 20 years. It's still yeah. there now while they're doing the plan. I mean, <laughs> what does that tell you? There is no appetite to enforce. Unless, no. unless someone comes in and starts banging their heads together. You know, occasionally it happens. Well, we are an island of hot tempers, right? Yeah. I mean, like... I just can't imagine a room where you have the village folk, the farm folk, the hoteliers, the government, the local authorities. I cannot see them in the same room having a calm conversation that's full of compromise and agreement. doesn't have to happen in one meeting. It has to happen over a few. I don't see it happening. And You've said you sent a letter 25 years ago. Yeah. And we're still talking about it. Look at at it from this point of view as well. We are small. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is the sound, the Cyprus, the Republic of Cyprus, is the size of a, a small county in England. Correct. All right? People-wise, it's the size of a small city in England or any other European country. How difficult is it for people to be on top of these things? We haven't got <laughs> 10 national parks. We have one piece of land. It's Supposedly, there's awful things. It would take the president, with the way they drive, an hour and a bit to get up there. Yeah. If he wants to see exactly what's going on, instead of getting annoyed and saying, what's going on up there, go and have a look. Yeah. Well, they don't, don't drive. They can go in a helicopter. Yeah, it's exactly. A but ride. send someone you trust. You know, yeah. you could, you can be on it. This is what annoys yeah. me. We are small enough to be able to con- to be on these things. Yeah. And this, and I keep seeing these things that are happening now, like changes in the cities, which are upsetting people for all sorts of re- reasons. And you think, well, we've only got three towns to yeah. worry about. You can. Concentrate on that one thing. You're the president of a very small country. You're you're the president of what somewhere else will be a municipality. Yeah, you have a dozen ministers of a very very small country. You have yeah. you have a civil service. You have ministries. It is yeah. a small place. You don't have to worry about all these things and devolve elements and. And it's a country that doesn't have militias and tribes, and it doesn't no. have conflict. It doesn't no. have poverty. I mean, it's a relatively affluent country. The yeah. GDP is pretty good compared to a lot of places. Um, we have three and a half million tourists coming every year. I mean, there is really no excuse. I mean, we, we really could be 
the Singapore of the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, we, I don't know, I don't like comparing to Singapore, but I mean, I always do because it's one place I'm familiar with. Um, let, 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 let's change topic for a moment because we're talking about um, governance and whatnot. You migrated from the UK back to Cyprus. How many years has it been now? Nine. Nine. nine years. So you were a, a separate of the diaspora for quite some time. Yeah. I'm not going to give away your age now. <laughs> um, and you've moved back to Cyprus. First question, any regrets? No, none. Great. Second question, what is your perception of Cyprus as a returning diasporan? Um, how do you find it? How does it compare to the Cyprus you knew from a distance? Yeah, so I'm a special case. All right, I was born and bred in England. Yep. But my parents were old and they came to Cyprus when I was 13. Okay. So I came to Limassol when I was 13 and stayed for three years and went to the grammar school in Limassol. And so when I came over, my Greek was very poor, very paffiate Greek. Mm-hmm. And I learned quite quickly because Cyprus was a different place in the early 80s and all your friends would be Greek speaking and the school yeah. taught Greek and you got to use it. So my Greek improved, but then I went back to do my A-levels and degree. Did your parents go back with you? No, I went back at 16 and stayed, basically. On your own? Yeah, Mm -hmm. like the old days. And uh, I spent the age of, say, from when I finished my degree to like when we moved here, it was always in the back of my mind. But then life takes over. You get involved, you get married, you start having a family, it becomes more complicated. Mm-hmm. And at one point I decided, no, if I don't do it now, if we don't do it now as a family, then we're never going to do it. And so I started to agitate towards that direction and have to convince people who are happy there. We weren't unhappy there. This is a thing. Yeah. A lot of migration happens because you're not happy somewhere mm-hmm. and you want to go to somewhere else and the grass is greener. Mm-hmm. For me, it wasn't like that. We were happy there. We had good jobs. We had a house in London. Mm-hmm. We had our friends. We had our social circles. We we did things. We, you know, but the back of my mind with those three years that I'd spent here as a teenager where my world changed and I got another culture, I got another language, I I saw another way of living. And I'd been visiting every year since then. Never lived here again, but I'd been visiting every year and got getting to know the island a bit more. So I came over here with my eyes open. I knew I couldn't, as a an abodimo, somebody coming from the diaspora, yes. a repatriated Cypriot, necessarily rely on finding work here that I'd done in England. Mm-hmm. I couldn't rely on my wife finding the work here that she'd had. But luckily we were relatively comfortable in that we didn't have to rely on money here we could carry on some of our work there Mm -hmm. we were like remote workers before my wife worked remotely for the last 15 20 years before it was cool yeah yeah it's quite a hipster i was lucky i could carry on doing some acting work because that became the audition process became remote Mm -hmm. so i was able to get work here even though i wasn't going to auditions in london and uh, we've created new avenues of money as well business and other such work and but that was the big trick not having to rely on the local economy also knowing what they're like here not being annoyed by things you Mm. hear so many repatriated cypriots or foreigners who are living here now what what did you think was going to happen it's not going to become switzerland it's not going to become it's it is what it is this is why you like it you get annoyed that you see cars parked on the pavement but once in a blue moon you're quite happy that you can park illegally 
it's a real give and take. You have to no. really, you know, it's true, <laughs> and it's unfortunate. But it's it's not so much the fact that you're going to park illegally. It's the fact that you know you're not going to just get a ticket after ten seconds when you've parked yeah. semi legally or you're unloading. Yeah. Those things. The flexibility. Yeah, there's an element of that which we like. The fact that the distances are near. There's all these other things that you don't think about when you're moving, but then you really appreciate once you're here. You came over as a Cypriot or diaspora, but your wife is not Cypriot. No, she's English-French. English-French. Was it difficult for her to adapt to the Cypriot? Again, she had a sense of the place. We came over for a year to start with. Well, that's what I told my family. (laughs) And uh, How old were your kids at the time when you moved? Uh, they would have been 12, 10 and 8, or 11, okay. 9 and 7. Mm-hmm. My wife's a linguist, so she she managed to learn Greek quite quickly. So that obviously helps a lot. She had her work as well. She was able to travel through her work. Mm-hmm. So for her, it was a good challenge. I carried on doing what I was doing, which is being quite flexible, helping with the kids. So it wasn't that big a change. It was just mm-hmm. that we were here now and we had to make new friends. Yeah. But even there, we had a couple of people we knew already. So And, so, and Cyprus is a social place. Yeah. It's, it's, once you've made friends, once you're in networks and circles, it, it grows and grows. No, and no, the, the advantage was that you see people. So you'd have a friend in London that would take 45 minutes to get to and you'd see twice a year. Yeah. And that was seen as a regular good friend. Yeah, that would be a yeah. good friend because you'd been friends for years, but you wouldn't see them. Yeah. And here... If you've got some friends, you can get to see them, even if they're in a different town. And it's often serendipitous. Like, yeah, you, you'll see yeah, them. You'll bump into people. Yeah, exactly. Like you'll bump into people, which is a good thing, because then yeah. you see these acquaintances and you... Little refreshers every yeah, time you see them. Yeah. That's interesting. How do you think the the authorities here and the, the local indigenous non-migrant community, how do you think they see the secrets of the diaspora and the repatriation phenomenon and... How do you think they welcome or not welcome them or integrate them or not integrate them? Mm. How do you feel there? Is it a bit of an us and them? Is it? I think I think in the past there was a, the locals would had a bit more us and them and you know the odd nickname and such for the mm-hmm. Cypriots from abroad. I think now that Cyprus has changed so rapidly in the last ten years that you now have whole swathes of other nationalities that have turned up. So. Mm-hmm. Before it was just the English in Paphos and the English spread around and the odd other pocket of yeah. of settlement from abroad. Now though, with the um, with Limassolgrad becoming what it has become, with <laughs> with the Israeli influx even more recently over the last yeah. few years, and we're not talking about s- relatively slow influxes of people. We're talking Rapid. tens of thousands in a year, yeah. Yeah. and. Not just tens of thousands of people coming here to work, say, the way that the third party, the third country nationals come and work and almost disappear Mm -hmm. because they're working in the fields or they're working in houses. We're talking about people coming over, buying all the businesses, Mm -hmm. buying even the schools, taking over whole areas. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think now the Cypriots just think of us as Cypriot because we are Cypriot. They don't. They, there's, they've got too much else going on now. There's other people mm-hmm. to think about as being other. As we've become compared to the third nationals or yeah. whatever. That, yeah, so we are now more separate than we ever were before. Because, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I can accept that because when I came in 2006, I felt very foreign. I felt very... You know, people would butt up against me, and I was always called the kangaroo, and yeah. you know, or the, the British Cypriots being Charlie's, you know. Yeah. So I, I found that... Um, 
as the years have gone by, it's not just because I speak more and more Greek or more and more embedded, but even with people that meet me for the first time, I don't get that pushback like I used to. And I think that's because I'm now one of us, one of them, which is us. You know? yeah. There's another thing, though. I think that we're the last batch. Mm-hmm. What do I mean by that? Well, our parents went over. Either my, my dad went in 46, yeah. other people went in 1960, a big batch went in 74. That was it. Yeah. The ones who went after that were the odd person who studied and stayed abroad. Mm-hmm. There isn't this big bunch of second-generation Cypriots who are going to come back anymore. Okay, it's interesting well, you where, say that. No, but if, if you talk to Cypriots yeah. of our age who went in the army, say, 20 years ago, uh-huh. there were like tons of them in that Alpha Sira, the yeah. first batch of the year. Yeah, they, yeah. They, you, you, you see them now and say, oh, yeah, he was in the army with me. He was all the, they all came over at the same time because they were the kids of the yeah. parents who went in 1960. Okay, There'll be sure. another batch who were the, the kids of the parents who went in 74, possibly coming back. Yeah. But I... Do you see them coming now? You're, I don't I, see I, them. Right. I don't meet any 25-year-olds coming. I meet one in a blue moon. Okay. It's I, very rare. I get what you're saying. That makes sense. What, I, what I'm thinking is that we have this brain drain where we have the today's students going off, for lack of a better description, to the West to study. They're going off to the UK. They're going off to America. Now the Netherlands has become quite popular for Cypriot yeah. students. I'm seeing... Fewer and fewer of them hurrying back. And I'm seeing more and more of them getting lucrative jobs in London, in Amsterdam, in Seattle, in New York. I'm seeing more and more of them migrating to places like Stockholm, Barcelona. Um, More and more of them working and living semi-permanently overseas now. And this mob now... Because they're not going as big migrant batches. They're not going as refugees of 74 or as batches of economic migrants of the 60s. Because they're all individual travel, individual, mm, I'll use the word migrants in this item. Because they're going off as individuals, they're not so much embedding in separate communities of the diaspora. They are marrying foreigners. They're marrying other people that aren't separate. So I think it's less likely, even less likely now, that their children would ever consider coming back to Cyprus because they're going to be half Cypriot. Um, so I think that a lot of this brain drain is at the expense of Cyprus, losing good people, losing intelligent people, losing entrepreneurs. Um, and that's it. It's a one-way trip out of the islands. It's assets lost. You don't need them. You've got all these new entrepreneurs coming. Well, the thing, <laughs> but they're not Cypriot, That's what they? the government seems to be saying. We don't need them. We've got the Russian mm. entrepreneurs. We've got the Israeli entrepreneurs Well, look, if, if you're willing to be a multicultural state, then that's fine. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. I mean, like, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of a multicultural society. I'm saying it as an asset, not because they're Cypriot as such, but because they were already here. They're already citizens. They're already Cypriot. They already know the language. They're already embedded. It's a shame that they go off to study and don't come back. And I don't blame them for not coming back because you're not going to come back to Cyprus and have the same level job in most cases as you would. You know, how, how many heart surgeons do we need? How many, you know, no, bridge need. engineers do we need? You know, there's only so many neurologists. Yes, but this is, this is the thing, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> you may not need so many heart surgeons, but you need really good people in the health service. You need really good mm. people in the ministry. Yeah. You know, so not everyone becomes a heart surgeon, but how many of them go off and study biotech or yeah. 
biomed because they haven't managed to get to medical schools where they study those things. But yeah. they come back here, they don't see a routine to become no. one of the administrators because this is the word and this covers everything we're talking about. There is still a distinct, a great lack of meritocracy. I agree. Right? And agree. so because of that, this is they don't come back Look, because they don't see that route back in. I mean, and we use the word meso all the time here, which yeah. is nepotism. The, the act of nepotism, the island is rife with it. And it's a very transparently yeah. nepotistic country. So if somebody does come back with a biotech degree or whatever, the chances of them ending up in the administration or in a decent hospital or in a state hospital or something, it, a lot of it depends on the meso. It depends on the nepotistic patterns that they can tap into, which is very unfortunate because if you had a meritocratic if you had meritocracy operating at its proper function, a lot of these people would come back and slide into good employment. Mm. Now, the second part of that question is, sure, they come back and they do get a job or they do get what they wanted. Is the salary something that could ever be comparable to the salary that they would get where they had studied? Because the cost of living, we have to be really honest, in Cyprus is escalating rapidly. It's growing. It's getting harder and harder to make ends meet. Yet salaries are most certainly not matching. And they're not growing at the same rate. So this is almost like secrets that have gone off as students have become then, whether they like it or not, economic migrants. They didn't leave because of that, but they become that. Why aren't wages increasing or keeping up with the rest of Europe? That's a very good question. I don't have the answer to that. I mean, I could give you the my speculation, but uh, I... I, I, I Demand and supply usually would yeah. mean that if you need good people, you have to pay for them. Yeah, you say that, but I do also see a lot of industries. Just last night, I was being told about this uh, one particular woman who was working in a, in a certain desk job company. No one, I don't want to give away what it is who was offered a 35% pay rise in another company and the employer was not interested in keeping her, even though they had invested in training her up, they would invested in getting her to their level of skill, but weren't willing to either meet the offer or entertain it. That's always going to be, it has to be demand and supply. We used to mm-hmm. see it in England with the plasterers, the builders, mm-hmm. their wages would really fluctuate. So they would be £80 a day and then they'd be £140 and then they'd go back down and mm-hmm. it would be dependent on how much businesses were and how many of them there were. Yeah. Now, if we're saying that a newly qualified accountant here is only going to get €1,100 a month, yeah. but that's because there's so many of them. They don't have to attract them. If there was a shortage of accountants or lawyers then they obviously would so people who are going off to study maybe got to think about what they're going off to study as well i mm-hmm. remember you know a newly qualified architect's not going to earn a lot of money now there's so many architects on the island and you can see the universities here are churning out even more so a lot of that has to do with that now if people if there was meritocracy they knew that you come back with that architecture degree and you will find a route into town planning or Mm -hmm. you will find a route into land registry you will find another route into a relatively good job or other ngos or whatever it may be then maybe they would think about it but as we've said the meritocracy isn't there as far as they can tell so they find it easier to stay away it's interesting i i like your point about supply and demand like like you've just said i mean we have an abundance of accountants and lawyers here which will obviously keep prices down because there's always another option if you're not happy with the price. Yeah. 
On the flip side of that, how many biomedics can come and work here? What industry do we have? We don't have that industry. Um, we could be a hotspot for medical tourism, but uh, the it's not really ever kicked off. They try to, for and this would be your industry now, they try to kick off Olivewood and have like, you know, the film studios here and have all these big shot movies being made here. And sometimes it seems to be looking like it's crumbling at the seams. Other times it seems to be a success story, you know. With Olivewood, yeah. if you talk to any producer now of film or TV, mm-hmm. they'll say, we, we've got stuff coming up and we have no crew. It's actually really busy here. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the Hollywood thing, you don't see it happening, mm-hmm. but it's happening because we're such a, again, we're a mm-hmm. small island. How many productions do you think we can handle? But they are coming. You, I, I worked on an Israeli TV series two years ago. There was mm-hmm. a French one at the same time. There's mm-hmm. the local productions, which are funded by the government, which do provide the work that people can keep going with. And then mm-hmm. these other productions come in. There was a Russian TV series that was filmed here that had to break off because of the war. But that was providing work for loads of crew and loads of local actors. I was quite surprised, but they were doing it in English or yeah. they were going to dub them later. And there was the, and so that stuff is there now. But again, think outside the box. What is lacking? A studio. Mm-hmm. If they had a studio, then we could be more like Malta and that would mm-hmm. create a bigger industry, people going off to study come back because they can see a way into that industry. That industry isn't really controlled by Messon. It's a talent industry. They want the best cinematographers. They want the best sound engineers. They want the best whatever it may be. And that industry could grow. And there's loads of people who go and study these subjects. Why do you think it's stifled? I mean, I was puzzled a few years back to hear that a documentary on Cyprus was filmed in Malta. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I they've, got the, they've got the facilities and they Correct. may have got some tax break as well. There may yeah. have been other elements there. But so why do, why do you think, though, it's not... Is it just a matter of a studio, a production office? Like what, what, what? I think, and I might get in trouble here, but again, the meritocracy <laughs> thing happens. Who is... who? I wouldn't say about the present occupants of those positions in the Ministry of Culture, because as far as I can tell, they're very, very capable. And the ones I've mm. met are very, very capable. Yeah, no, I agree. But I've met a few I of them, wonderful. As far as I can tell, they're understaffed. Mm-hmm. At the moment, now that it's quite busy, they're understaffed. Yep. And secondly, in the past, who was working in these places? You'd hear about people being sent there from other departments. You were, you're wondering when this thing is being set up, who's actually in that department, who understands that industry? Yep. And now we go back to the beginning, where I think <laughs> that a lot of the talent from the diaspora, yep. which has this knowledge of these industries from abroad, mm-hmm. can't find a way in. To these places. Spot on. Um, if I'm t- I, I've got a relative I know very well um, who is the bee's knees of the industry. I mean, he's spectacular. The guy, is, he gets flown over to the UK, he gets flown over to Grand Canaria, he gets flown mm-hmm. over to all these different places to work and uh, film for like, you know, Hungarian channels, for British channels. Yet here in Cyprus, every time he's offered his opinion or tried to be involved, shut down. And it was, it was a bit of an us and them phenomenon. It was like, oh, this guy's going to come from the UK and tell us how to do things. Mm. You know, so what that he has a BAFTA? I mean, the guy has a BAFTA. I mean, let's take him a little bit serious now. You know, and, and yet I, I see him struggling locally, but internationally he's doing wonders. And for me, it's an asset, again, it's an asset loss. Even though he's choosing to live in Cyprus, he loves Cyprus, he's embedded and he's embraced the place. But for me, this is an asset loss. It's an, it's a, an asset, it's a, it's a skill set. 
I'll give you an, exactly. I'll give you another example. You and I both studied international relations, yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was in England, there was a chap. I won't name him, but he was heavily involved in the local, politi local political scene. And he had a very good link up with the ruling government's party. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went and saw the uh, A High Commission at one point, And I was discussing him with, I was saying, you really should get strong links with this chap. He has a sort of in to the chancellor, to the prime minister's office. He's you know, because we're second generation. We have friends who went to college and end up in Downing Street or end up in those government departments. You know, I've got friends who are ambassadors in England now. Yeah. You know, you just have that thing that somebody from the High Commission who's been trained in Cyprus won't have. And I'm not saying they should employ him, but they should create those links. I found out, and he said, no, 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 I, I know everybody in the Foreign Office. I'm fine, said the High Commissioner to me. I said, all right, fair enough. Then years later, I hear that when they really needed to get something to one of the government there the chancellor i think it was or maybe it was the minister of defense mm -hmm. they had to go through this chap in the end yeah because that was the only way they were going to do it the other channels weren't working mm -hmm. now to me those are the sort of people that they should be attracting here yeah and they'll say well their greek's not good enough well i know that that's not it, that's, that's, there that's there right. needs to be an element of Greek, of course. You should be able yeah. to have the conversation, but you don't need to write your notes necessarily. No, you don't need to write a Pulitzer Prize. And I know for a fact there's one high commissioner who doesn't use Greek. There's only one. It doesn't matter which one it is, but there is one who doesn't use a lot of Greek. And it doesn't matter, no. you know, because he brings something else to it. And that's what you sometimes... But again, lack of meritocracy. It's not coincidence when you look at the list of ambassadors, how many of them had parents who were ambassadors or have siblings who are ambassadors. And I'm not saying they're not, they shouldn't be there. No, some of them are great. Yeah. I'm sorry, it is a bit peculiar that we have this diaspora and not one of them can get anywhere near that world. There is a, there is a I remember, I remember in 2006 when I moved here and I spent um, six months at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a, um, like a uh, internship. Yeah. I remember thinking, what better assets, what better ambassador for Cyprus but the diaspora who understands the countries they've come from, who understands, first of all, they're fluent in English or any other language they might have come from. Yeah. Um, these are the exact people you need to send out. A good example of this is the Australian ambassador to Greece yeah. was a Greek of the diaspora. Yeah. So he was born in Greece, Fluent in Greek, understood the Greek culture, and um, and represented Australia in Greece. <coughs> now, the, the Greeks loved him. <coughs> the Greeks loved him. Um, he embedded. Of course, Australia didn't see him as being biased or anything because of his Greek background, because it's a friendly country. It's I think the American thing. ambassador to Athens is Greek-American. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm, not, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's... Well, America's different because it's, it's, it's a, a business yeah. appointment as well sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, this is, this is, it's smart. I mean, like, it, it would make sense for me for an Australian Cypriot to be sent to Canberra or a British Cypriot to be sent to London because they know the community. The one, the one who's been there until very recently was a British Cypriot and he's the only one I know who came through England and came here, worked in the Foreign Office and has ended up being sent back. And they've used him in a, where have they sent him? They've sent him to Washington. They've sent him to London. I think he's off to Ireland. So, yeah, obviously... Yeah. Makes sense. I'll get another example, and we'll finish with this if if you want. 
my daughter, she's studying now. What's she studying? She's studying history and languages. Right, she's going to finish. She's going to have a degree in history. She might go on to do a degree in international relations. She's hopefully going to end up speaking, or she already does speak, English, French, Spanish, and she's got pretty good level Greek. She won't end up in the Foreign Office here. No. She's not good enough for them. But why? It just, that's what I don't understand. They'll say, no, she can apply. But we know how it well, works. First of all, you need to sit the exams often. And yeah. the exams are in Greek. And a lot of us just, just don't have that super high level. And Greek's not an easy language. She's got A-level Greek. Or she's got an yeah. A-level, an element of the A-level in Greek. So her Greek isn't too bad. And it could be improved. But I'll give you another example. There's a Turkish Cypriot girl that we both know, a woman we both know, mm. who has got C2 Greek. Do you know what C2 yeah, Greek? Yeah, it's yeah. good enough to, for the listeners, it's good enough to teach in a Greek university to have C2 Greek, yeah. not just study. And she's got a degree from one of the best universities in the world. She's got experience. Can she get into the foreign office here? Right, with her, because she's Turkish Cypriot, there's that element. But again, it just shows yeah. we will not let you in. It's our club. Yeah. And, and it's ironic because yeah. the rest of the world doesn't speak Greek. No. So you need to speak English yeah, or French or German or Turkish you know, even. You, you if you've need got that. someone with three, four languages yeah. and everything else, you should yeah. be cultivating. How can we get them in? So, you it, know, I dare say that tomorrow, if the Cyprus problem is to be resolved and re-reunify, we need to rapidly have a bunch of Turkish Cypriot diplomats on the go to be posted to Turkey, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, all these places that have Turkic languages. We're not going to be sending Greek Cypriots that speak Greek and broken English there. Hmm. We need to send a Turkish speaker there. And it makes sense. And it's in our advantage to make trade and better our relationships with these countries. I mean, this is untapped assets in our neighbor it's in our neighbor they're, they're just as close to us as all the european nations yeah you know once our we've got to start looking in different directions eventually otherwise we're going to be we're continuing to cock our heads towards europe forgetting that the arab and turkic world is right next to us and accessible and there's money to be made but um just one last point before we um say goodbye um I want to uh, I want to ask you what your plans are for the next couple of years. What do you where do you see yourself? Um, do you I mean how, how old are your kids now? Are they all ready to study and move on, or you got yeah some... they'll be going one by one. They're going off. Yeah, um, I've got I'll just carry on as I am. Really, I'm doing some acting. I've got a short film that I'm going to make, which is set in Lara, believe uh-huh. it or not, which is about the salt and how it was a monopoly and there's a little story about that and I've got some funding from the government to do that short film oh, so fantastic. we're going to be filming that next year in May uh, and just working I mean I'm, I'm hopefully doing a TV thing in a couple of weeks in Budapest FX International okay I finally get to play a doctor which is what I wanted to be when I was younger <laughs> Um, so you get to finally put a strap yeah, yeah, around your neck yeah. <laughs> even though it's acting um, and yeah just carry on and I'm involved with as, as you know with Cyprus Academic Dialogue mm-hmm. to a certain extent and I ran a place in London called the Association of Cypriot Greek and Turkish Affairs with for which was a talking shop, which was a think tank, which was at a place where Turkish Cypriots, Greek Cypriots, Turks, Greeks, mm-hmm. ex-ambassadors could come and investigate the Cyprus problem, discuss it. You know, everyone from 
Richard Hannay to the Turkish ambassador would come and speak there. Cypriot politicians would come. So the closest I could find to that here was CAD, which yeah. I'm involved in. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's not much appetite to talk about the Cyprus problem here because no one can see a way out, but we push on. We still need to have that dialogue, don't you? I mean, you still need to have yeah. a chin wag in a room with, yeah, um, yeah. well, with like-minded, but also not like-minded. No, true. Not, and yeah. in London, it was interesting because you would be with Turkish Cypriots who were totally diametrically, diametrically opposed to your yeah. views here, it doesn't really happen when we meet in a room with Turkish Cypriots here. It's generally with like-minded people. Yeah, 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 yeah. How many times have you been in a room in Nicosia yeah. or across the board, you know, across where, with a grey wolf, for example? Well, and, and I think there's a lack of understanding no. that um, dialogue means often different opinions. Yeah. Um, and it's great that we get along with a lot of people. That's fantastic. I'm not going to deny that. But we definitely need to have opposing views in the room even for them they will often be sitting in like somebody who's let's say against the reunification of the island will often sit in a room with other anti-reunificationists and you know slap each other on the back and the same with pro-reunificationists in the same room you need to get those two parties in the same room and actually discussing because there's no way to break a deadlock unless you speak to the others you can't be in an echo chamber the, the whole the whole thing is is mad here. I mean, we've got politicians who are whose whole careers revolve around the Cyprus problem. A lot of them got into power through mm -hmm. promises and such like. And to me, it's just madness. Like, for example, some of them have never been to the north yeah. because they won't show their passport. Fair enough. But do you know what's there anymore? If you're a 50-year-old yeah. politician who's never actually been there, do you know what Varossi actually is? You and I have both been to Varossi. We've yeah. seen what it is. We kept hearing from the Varushodis, it's this, it's that. And you think, yeah, yeah, oh, of course. When you go there, yeah. you suddenly think, ah, it was far ahead of Limassol. It yeah. was a cultural hub. It was an amazing place to be. It still is. It could be. But we've got politicians who don't really know what was there. They don't really understand. Well, there's so many of them that think that Carinia is still a fishing yeah, village, yeah. not realising it's a full-blown you know, city. How there. many of them actually do have friends who are... They'll all say, oh, yes, we have friends who are Turkish Cypriot. Yeah. Really? Really? Yeah. Honestly, are you really hanging out with them? Have you really? Are you popping over for a coffee with them? Are they and coming maybe over? the Turkish Cypriot friend that you have is a like-minded, yeah. which, again, is kind of devoid, devoid of purpose. Again, we... You know, growing up in abroad with the Turkish Cypriots who were either in Melbourne or in London, mm. it was a different thing, yeah. you know. First of all, you, it was a lot more accessible to have these discussions because you didn't literally have a physical divide. Yeah. And, and up until the gates opened, you literally could not speak to them on the island. Now, now you can, but I mean, back but in the day. It's, you're, we're in Nicosia. We could just hear the mosque a second yeah. ago coming through. Yeah. In Limassol, we might as well be... Not a hundred kilometers yeah. away. It might as well be a thousand kilometers. You might away. as well be somewhere in Petersburg. I don't. Uh, of all the people I see in Limassol, if I ask any of them tomorrow, yeah. when was the last time you talked to a Turkish Cypriot? I don't know any of them. There's a few older chaps who used to go over and see their mates. Yeah. I, I think they've stopped going over now because yeah. they're older, because they're 60, yeah, yeah. 70, 80. My generation in Limassol, let alone Paphos, yeah. they have no contact. How are you going to create a new state? How are you going to work together? How are you going to share government with them? Well, how do you force them, though, to make contact? Because I mean, it's not like, well, it's not the easiest thing, You right? try and get 
you trying some of the there is a school in Limassol that has linked up with Turkish Cypriot schools but because we have in the public sector especially this element of chauvinism, nationalism, fear, whatever it may be, they don't want their kids to mix with Turkish ships. They don't want them to play a basketball game or a game of football, even in the yeah. buffer zone. They don't want them to meet up for um, a, U- a, a junior UN meeting with yeah. Turkish ships. I think the appetite is stifled as well because of the, the so-called distance between yeah. Limassol and Nicosia. I think you're much more likely to get someone from Nicosia or even Larnaca to do something by communal like that than you would someone from Limassol or Bafos or somebody from far north Carpasia because of, you know, like, because of the, just the logistics of it. And you know what Cypriots are like? We don't like to travel far. We don't like to commute far. Yeah. We don't like to be inconvenienced. We want everything. I mean, this is why we park our cars on footpaths because we want to be right outside the cafe. But how can we be saying now that we are pro a federal solution where power has to be shared, where you're going to have civil servants working next to each other. We've just discussed how they don't even want their Greek Cypriot diaspora anywhere <laughs> near these jobs. And they are you going to tell me that these turkeys are going to vote for Christmas, like the ambassadors are going to vote for a solution, which means that half of them won't be able to be ambassadors. They'll have to be number twos because we'll have to divvy up a third or quarter yeah or a fifth uh, or half of those jobs to the other community. Yeah. And it's all getting so messy because what is that? How can you have a solution now where it's 80 Greek Cypriot, 20 Turkish Cypriot, when you've got 30, 40,000 Russians now and Israelis? All right, they haven't got the nationality, but a lot of them have. Their yeah. kids are going to have it. You know. Well, the, the, the diametrics of the Cyprus problem have changed as well. Yeah. You're right. It's not just about Greek and Turkish Cypriots now. We're looking at a quarter of the population that are not separate at all. This is I mean, it. you need to adapt. And then, yeah. But look, Jimmy, I want to thank you very much for um, coming and recording today on the podcast. Love to have you back again sometime. I mean, we don't have enough time to discuss everything. Yeah. I mean, we could talk for hours, as you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, please, please do come back. Keep us posted. I look forward to seeing um, the development of your short film next year. You said yeah. in May, right? Yeah, it's called okay. Alas. Salt. Right. Yeah. So if you're looking for any actors for that, I'm available. <laughs> we might need someone to play Tavli in the co- coffee shop. Okay, done, done, done. I accept it. I accept it. I, I, I charge a thousand euros an hour. Um, <laughs> but look, thank you so much. Um, love to see you again. Have a safe trip back to Limassol. I know it's so far from Nicosia where yeah. we're recording. Um, and just before I forget, I always uh, want to mention a thank you to Limoncello and the CVAR uh, Center of Visual Arts and Research Severis Foundation for sponsoring and supporting this podcast. Um, and again, one last time, thank you, Jimmy, for joining me today. Thank you, Gosta. The first trilingual podcast station of Cyprus, Island Talks, open, diverse, free. <laughs>